Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's magnificent millennial panel, returning to the roundup is Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, it's so good to see you again. It's great to be with you. And making his politicology debut is Ben Jacobs. Ben is a Washington, D.C.-based political reporter whose work has been in The New York Magazine, The Atlantic, Salon, The Boston Globe, The Daily Beast, and The Guardian. Ben, welcome to politicology. Thanks. On this week's roundup, war, climate, data, and guns. The shocking speed at which the Taliban took over Afghanistan, leaving thousands of Americans and our Afghan allies in harm's way, and leaving us with questions about blame, how to move forward, and America's broader role on the global stage. The American West burns and burns through its largest water source as a damning UN report puts the unfolding climate catastrophe center stage. Some 100 million T-Mobile users may have had their data exposed in the latest big tech breach, and we'll find out what stories Lucy and Ben are keeping an eye on. And finally, in our Politicology Plus segment, we'll talk about the shots fired at the National Rifle Association by New York AG Letitia James and the path ahead for the gun lobby group. You can become part of this growing community at politicology.com slash plus. Over the last week, the free world watched as the Taliban toppled Afghanistan's government with shocking speed, with the militant group taking over the presidential palace in Kabul earlier this week, leading to total chaos in the streets of Kabul and on the tarmac of Kabul's airport, where we saw thousands of desperate Afghans risk their lives in an attempt to board planes out of the country. With millions of dollars in American military equipment likely to end up in the hands of the Taliban, at this point, it's not a given that we will successfully evacuate the tens of thousands of those left behind who helped us during our 20-year engagement there. And the U.S. now has upwards of 6,000 troops on the ground securing the airport while evacuations continue. Over two decades and four presidencies, Brown University estimates the total spending in Afghanistan at $2.26 trillion, which just to you know, metabolize those numbers, Forbes points out, is $300 million per day, every day, for 20 years. There have been 2,500 U.S. military deaths, 4,000 U.S. civilian contractors killed in Afghanistan, and the toll for Afghans is far greater, an estimated 69,000 Afghan military police and 47,000 civilians killed. We are, I think, going to have more questions than answers for some time. And there are some questions that we'll never be able to answer. And Ben and Lucy, there is a lot more at stake here than blame. But we need to talk about who's responsible for the catastrophe. And certainly the Biden administration owns the last week. This is theirs. But if you look at how we got to this point, there is really decades of blame to go around. In fact, I think you can argue, you know, most of D.C., most people involved in the last four administrations, military leadership, the defense industry, and not to mention most of Congress throughout this time shoulders responsibility for what's taking place. So how are you two thinking about blame uh, in all of this? Ben, do you want to start us off? I mean, I start off by pointing out you missed the most obvious. Which, which is that? The Taliban. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Let, let's, let's take a step back. That if, if the Taliban were uh, not the Taliban. Yeah the situation would be slightly different like yeah. we should we should uh, we should at least put things in perspective that at the end of the day that uh, 
I think it's non-controversial to say that the Taliban are kind of bad guys. Yeah. Not the best. Yeah. Um, but you know, that I think there's in terms of going through the policy quagmire over the past 20 years. I mean, this this goes through the history of the United States, certainly in my adult lifetime, that you know, figuring out what happened that I think at this point in terms of revisiting decisions made in, you know, the first decade of the century is probably a little bit water under the bridge that yeah. at this point, if, you know, that there's certainly reasons folks want to do it, but, you know, that, you know, we can talk about why is the economy not great right now and go back to Lehman Brothers. Yeah. Um, but I think the events of the past week, I mean, I think getting to the key point is focusing on, you know, not the detailed nuances of Afghanistan policy, which was a subtle fact, but why were guys hanging off of landing gears of planes trying to escape? That's 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 sort of the key issue that we're boiling down to. We're not into a broader issue about, you know, US policy again with the Mujahideen in nineteen eighties against the Soviets, but getting back to that key failure. And that I think is what folks are focused on yeah. because the Biden speech obviously was defending with the withdrawal. And a lot of withdrawal at this point had been somewhat priced in across the political spectrum. But the question is focusing specifically on how we got to the point that the you know we're desperately trying to get folks into the Kabul airport, and they're folks hanging in that that this specific crisis that there's sort of a bigger picture discussion, which is for historians, yeah. but that's not the issue that's driving the debate right now. It's just you know. You have to focus in much more closely. Totally. Lucy, how are you thinking about? Well, I think when you think about that question of blame, and you're right to point out that the Taliban yeah. is to blame, yeah. uh, we point. also see that I think that, you know, structurally, maybe Afghanistan was always a house of cards. I mean, the president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani, fled the country in the last week with allegedly maybe up to $170 million in cash, oh right? I mean, this this was the the person who was supposedly going to be the stabilizing force, right, in Afghanistan, a, a leader of a more stable, future-proof built Afghanistan. And so I think that actually really just gets fundamentally to questions about what America's role in the world is. And, you know, no one thinks I'm a fan of Donald Trump, but this was part of what he was playing to in 2016. It's it's something that has become an issue in in both, in, in, unfortunately, in mostly ugly ways, but, but could be a discussion that we could have in a more productive fashion. And yeah. one of the things that I think, this is controversial perhaps, but I personally feel both very patriotic as an American and also like I have a massive, massive problem with American exceptionalism in its current form. And even the reaction to what's going on in Afghanistan this week, there's so much coverage, even mainstream coverage about how shameful this is for the U.S., mm. the shame. And you can certainly bring shame into it in thinking about based on what's happening, should we never have been there? Was this ever the right move? Is it shameful to kick the can down the road? But a lot of the discussion around shame comes from what I think is like a hardwired feeling for people that America must be the world's policeman yeah. and that American might and that American military might is our is our ruler, yeah. is our our you know measuring stick for how strong the country is, how how strong our 
our position in the world is. And I think we have to be able to both kind of take our licks in in thinking about what went wrong in Afghanistan, but also maybe get a healthier perspective on on that piece about what America's role in the world is and, and what it should be and how we tie up our own sense of patriotism and American pride with that perception of what we should be doing abroad. It's also, I think, worth pointing out that nobody was talking about Afghanistan for a very long time until we saw these images. Right? I think that kind of goes to your point about how America perceives its strength on the world stage, right? And seeing this was kind of devastating to that idea. I, I think a couple of months ago, most Americans, including highly sophisticated people who follow the news, could not have given you much of a sense yeah. of what's going on in Afghanistan. And and that just, I think, goes to the inertia that comes with a two-decade war. Yeah. So there is one really important moment uh, from when Biden spoke to the American people. I want to highlight. Um, let's roll that clip. The events we're seeing now are sadly proof that no amount of military force would ever deliver a stable, united, secure Afghanistan, as known in history as the graveyard of empires. What's happening now could just as easily happen five years ago or 15 years in the future. You have to be honest. Our mission in Afghanistan is taking many missteps, made many missteps over the past two decades. I'm now the fourth American president to preside over war in Afghanistan, two Democrats and two Republicans. I will not pass this responsibly on, responsibility on to a fifth president. I will not mislead the American people by claiming that just a little more time in Afghanistan will make all the difference. Nor will I shrink from my share of responsibility for where we are today and how we must move forward from here. I am president of the United States of America. And the buck stops with me. So, Ben, we know the last guy never would have said anything like this um, in terms of taking responsibility. And I wonder how important you think it is for the president ultimately to acknowledge that he's responsible for these decisions that lead us to places where we are now. But also, in the same breath, do you think that that placing of blame in other in other places, invoking you know other people who share responsibility, does that detract from the projection of leadership in any way? I, I mean, I, I, it depends on on what what type of leadership you see in, in Joe Biden, but certainly he also made clear in his interview with George Stephanopoulos that he didn't see anything that he that he wanted to be changed, uh, that he, that should have been changed there. But obviously, you know, that he did sort of a very classic political two-step there in yeah. which he blamed everybody else and then take, said, I take full responsibility even though it's all their fault, yeah. um, which is – you know, not not unusual that this is, you know, you certainly mentioned it was different than what Trump would have done, but it's not different from what most other politicians would have done. And that that's, I think, the jarring return to generic uh, political, uh, you know, political homilies. Boring politics, right? I, mean, I don't know if predictable. it's predictable. I don't think if it's boring, banal, um, yeah. banal rhetoric rather yeah. than banal politics because this is not – you know, yeah. American allies hanging off the landing gear of planes is not is not boring. So it's important to recognize that this is probably where Trump and Biden were closest to being in agreement. And that's because broadly across the political spectrum, the American people wanted out. So everybody understands this. And polls from just before last weekend showed wide support for withdrawal. Um, 
support for the withdrawal has consistently been some 30 or 40 points higher than the opposition through July and August. And this isn't new. Um, back in December of 2008, support for the war was at 52%. And then in 2013, a CNN poll found that just 17% of Americans said they supported the war, which was at that point 12 years old. And so Americans hadn't just lost confidence in the war. We'd completely lost interest. Nobody talked about Afghanistan for years while the conflict sat at a stalemate. And I wonder what kind of reflections Americans should be having uh, at home on this. At least you started to get at this, you know, question of our role in the world stage. And, you know, how do you think this will impact the broader sense uh, of that role? How are we processing that right now? I know we're sort of in shock by these images that we're seeing, and this really cuts at the, you know, the the projection of American strength abroad. But as we process this, like, what is what are the what's the fallout going to be for this politically? Well, it's kind of interesting. I mean, a real luxury of being an everyday voter as opposed to a elected official or politician is that everyday Americans don't have to be accountable for their previously held views (laughs) because there was a time in this country when this was popular because there was this sense that this was how we got vengeance for September 11th. Um, We're coming up on the 20th anniversary of that. So I I think that that people like H.R. McMaster have given some kind of compelling interviews about this this week and thinking about how to tease out the the initial engagement in Afghanistan in the wake of September 11th, you know, thinking about how to get after just terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda. And then there is how long do you stay? How long do you stay? What is your responsibility to the people of Afghanistan. There was a piece, I think, in in the Washington Post by uh, Ahmed Masood, who's the son of a kind of longtime prominent kind of like freedom fighter, kind of just making an appeal to to Americans to call their members of Congress Mm. and ask for more aid and ask for, um, you know, like new troops deployment in Afghanistan. That's you know, it tugs at your heartstrings, but at some point to get to our earlier kind of line of discussion, you have to you have to draw a line. You have to draw a line about what is the country's role in the world and and how do you prioritize American interests against global interests? When when Joe Biden says, I'm the president of the United States and the buck stops with me, I think that what he's actually sort of saying is also I'm the president of the United States of America, not mm-hmm. of Afghanistan. So you can kind of quibble with things like, should allies have been more closely consulted? Should the you know drawdown have been done differently? Should we have prioritized who got out and when? I think we're in a really hot moment right now. And I do think it's going to cool off. I, I think that one of the things that is the, the, the most defining piece of this moment is actually something that is revealing some fissures even among people on the right, which is, do we, are we that kind of image, that Mm. Emma Lazarus image of a country that is going to open itself up, open up its gates to, you know, people from Afghanistan who have not only been supportive of the U.S., but also have, have for the last 20 years really not been under what the Taliban regime that is now becoming the norm again. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that 
this is, we're really quickly getting back to kind of like some early aughts rhetoric around Muslims and Muslims and terrorism and how to process um, people that we're inviting into the country. And so I think that this is quickly going to turn to a conversation about who we are domestically um, and hopefully Americans rise to the occasion. Yeah, there are uh, thousands of people in in harm's way um, as a result of the way this this pullout has has unfolded. Um, refugees attempting to flee the country, um, and yet there are folks on the right who are going. The Daily Beast puts it full nativist um, about you know in their opposition to America's acceptance of any of these refugees. Tucker Carlson uh, warns his viewers that Afghans would be resettled probably in your neighborhood, you know? And, Mm -hmm. and uh, like, I can't think of much more sort of disgusting and un-American xenophobic attacks on refugees um, from a crisis that we sort of are are responsible for creating in this pullout. So Ben, how are you thinking about the, the, the refugees, whether or not we have a moral obligation to resettle them and, and what, you know, the, the political response to that crisis is going to be? Well, there's clearly a divide on the right, uh, because on this, and it's particularly dealing with, you know, folks who aided American trips that this is, this is having to get into the sort of class of tens of thousands of people with, uh, SIV visas, mm-hmm. that this is not sort of generic, all refugees, but a very particular niche of, point. of folks who are in slightly unique circumstances that, you know, some of them were in combat with American troops um, and they and their families would not last long under Taliban rule. And I think there's sort of the question whether there's sort of the moral obligation specifically for those who served alongside in their families um, and those who are raising concerns about being vetted, uh, whether, you know, we should trust them that, uh, Sean Parnell, Republican Senate candidate in Pennsylvania, was on Fox News the other night pointing out that there's an interpreter who turned out to be an agent of the Taliban and, you know, opened fire on the troops he was assigned to as an example why we need to be more careful. And that this seems to really touch on a pretty clear sort of ongoing cleavage within the Republican Party between sort of the pre-Trump party and the post-Trump party. That, uh, that sort of the issue with dealing with these refugees is something, and you know, these the specific tranche of people. We should be specific that this is not right. This is not anyone who who wants to go. They're obviously concerned to get them to other countries if they want to leave. Uh, between certainly the more sort of traditional foreign policy hawks, traditional sort of social Christian conservatives, yeah. who both of whom, for slightly different reasons, sort of share this common ground, and then. Those who were having an entirely sort of different point of view, and from the uh, from the Trump era, that were not here to you know not 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 idealizing the Emma Lazarus sort of yeah. ideal of stuff, and sort of the gradations of that, but that sort of very clearly where there's an entirely different point of view, and that they would argue these folks need to be vetted. This is the responsibility. You know, we should certainly help them, but you know, get them out of there. But like, even if they served with the U.S. military, we have no obligation to. Bring yeah. them into the United States, maybe to some other country, sure. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That actually, that resistance to acknowledging the obligation, or or just they they think we have no obligation to that. That reminds me of the way uh, Molly McHugh um, uh, at at Georgetown. She's been on the show a couple times. Um, talks about this pincer movement of isolationism that you see from really both ends of the political spectrum. And Ben, you mentioned on the right, we have. Um, you know, this idea that 
basically intervening now is not our responsibility, not our job. And, uh, and on the, and on the farther left you have, it's not our, um, uh, not our right to, to intervene in, in the affairs of other countries. And so, um, I, I wonder if this, um, you know, how that, the, that isolationist tendency, uh, on both sides now is going to impact American interests in, uh, the rest of the world in terms of human rights, for example, sticking up for human rights and, and the consequences of our own actions. And these like these refugees. Well, one of the things that has really struck me this week are some of the images of Afghanistan in like the 60s and 70s, right? You know, I think we often forget how many parallels there are between Afghanistan and say Iran. And one of the things that has struck me this week is thinking about when you think about human rights, when you think about yeah. educating girls, when you think about, you know, sort of women's rights, the rights of other marginalized communities in Afghanistan. And then you think about this other piece of, of a kind of population who is there. There was a lot of coverage this week about the New York Times, Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. You know, together they have a few hundred people and their families who've been working for them all these years and getting those people out, right? And and I was thinking about how Afghanistan may be about to become a black box again mm. in the way that some other countries that are problematic have become. And so, you know, it's one thing to think about the SIV visa piece and think about troop withdrawal. But I think one of the things that is is hard to anticipate is what is going to happen when the dust settles. It, it is right now in the Taliban's interest right. to play kind of nice. And they're not even playing that nice, right? They have checkpoints set out set up outside the airport. They're, you know, they opened fire on protesters yesterday. But they have an interest in kind of playing nice because they are sort of having diplomatic relations, you know, with a whole bunch of countries. And, or want and, to, yeah. Right. And so they're making pronouncements about what it's going to be like. But a regime like the Taliban sort of, a, sort of paying lip service to a commitment to women's rights, yeah, will that turn out to be? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not. Right. And so, so I think that— it's a really tough it's a really tough thing because on some level the US it's not realistic for the US to just sort of pursue a quasi-imperialistic uh approach yeah. for for the good of insert marginalized group. It's it's a really challenging, challenging piece of this. And and it, it you know, it's it's really not realistic to think that continued military might is the answer either. So yeah. we're in a we're in a tough position and and so are our western allies and and we I don't think we're talking enough about what's the responsibility of western Europe, what's the responsibility yeah. of of the EU. You know, it cannot it's not feasible, it's not realistic for all of this to fall to the United States. I just keep thinking about this in terms of the, you know, the the constant inherent tension which we've talked about on the show before with national security folks but between American interests and American values. And this feels like when one of those things, at least the, the American values piece seems to be changing, shifting because of the attitudes, especially from the, you know, the Trumpist segment of, of the Republican party. So I don't know, Ben, I think that's what you're getting at. Mm -hmm. Is it possible to make sure the costs and casualties incurred were not in vain? In, in all of Afghanistan throughout the past 20 years? Yeah. 
I mean, that's 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 the question uh, that I don't think anyone will have an answer to in uh, in a couple hundred years. I mean, that that sort of you know did did the invasion of Afghanistan and you know end up preventing you know number of domestic terrorist attacks across the U.S. Western world since then? I don't know that there's enough debate about that where. Yeah. You know, you're. You know, that's that's not my field. I'm just a simple yeah. hack reporter, not yeah. a, not a, not a grand historian of Central Asia. Yeah. You know, people people make their arguments either way, and you know, I'm just I'm I'm just here to here to gossip with with politicians. <laughs> and again, we have to we have to unravel the connection between emotions, rightly yeah. so, about American lives lost with continued yeah. presence there, and we have an economic term for this, and it's sunk costs. Hmm. Let's leave it there. Speaking of humanity's self-inflicted wounds, for the first time since the Hoover Dam was built in the 1930s, the federal government declared a water shortage at Lake Mead, setting in motion a number of cuts to the amount of water supplied to states along the Colorado River, tightening the availability of water for drinking, for growing things, for generating hydroelectric power. And scientists say the Southwest is in the midst of a mega drought caused by our worsening climate crisis. Meanwhile, red flag warnings were in effect this week from Northern California across the West and into the Dakotas as dry air, high winds, and back-to-back-to-back heat waves have driven a devastating fire season. With much of the West experiencing their hottest June and July on record under hazy, smoky skies, with the West burning and the country's largest reservoir experiencing an unprecedented water shortage, I wanted to take another look at the recent UN report on climate change that we talked about a bit last week. And as we mentioned, the report concludes that extreme weather is bad and getting worse. It's hot and getting hotter. Some of the damage is already done. Um, We'll take millennia to unwind, but we can still mitigate it uh, by, as the report notes, sharply curbing greenhouse gas emissions. So Lucy... How you're from Arizona, uh, as our <laughs> listeners, I think, are familiar by now. Uh, how top of mind is climate change for people in the West right now? Well, I think that water is top of mind. Okay. And so to the degree that water is tied up with climate, then I suppose climate is top of mind. Part of what's happening in the West, there's no doubt that climate plays a role, but a piece of this shortage that was declared of the Colorado River. You know, there are seven states that depend on this allocation from the Colorado River. And this actually dates back to like the 1920s. Um, It was first sort of negotiated under Hoover. Um, And and the, the issue really has a lot of different pieces. And one of them is there are so many more people in the Western U.S. now than there ever were. And there are so many more um, demands on water sources than there ever were, not only through things like development and homes and people wanting to have, you know, homes in the middle of mm-hmm. Arizona in the kind of sun corridor with giant grass lawns and golf and courses, access to golf courses, <laughs> but also growing agriculture industries um, and kind of a, a question of of whether or not the Colorado River allocations can be relied upon or, you know, how to deal with things like groundwater pumping. And and then you have the wildfire piece, right? And yeah. the, some of the worst wildfire uh, uh, wildfires in the country this summer are actually, like, not in the same area that the water shortage is, mm-hmm. is happening in. But, you know, you have a huge problem that 
because of extreme weather, because of lack of snowpack, uh, you know, there's not enough runoff right. from snow. And so you you see the way that these things snowball, no pun intended. And then there's the other piece, which is a, a kind of long time lack of facing up to the fact that wildfires are a part of the natural cycle. You know, when we talk about, we we think about people who go and decide to live on the Florida coast, right? And and we talk about hurricanes and, you know, we could get into the extreme weather piece of that as well, but hurricanes is like a way of life. Like no one would think you go buy a house on the Western coast of Florida and that you should never sort of have to face a hurricane. Yeah, right. But, you know, in the West, for some reason, we have this attitude that like a, a wildfire is is catastrophic. And it could be if you've chosen to build your home in, in the, the middle in of the, the forest. But that's also yeah. part of what's what's happening. And so I think that climate certainly has a big role to play in this, but I think that there is a, it's a really complex dynamic of issues. And I think it's only going to become more so because I think that this shortage from what experts are saying is the first of many years of, of shortage on the in the Colorado River and in the West. First, well, of many years and also of extreme weather events, right? Right. So last week when we talked about this report, uh, it was as a backdrop to demands from Democratic lawmakers that more be done to combat climate change uh, in the pair of infrastructure bills that are moving. And Al Cardenas made a great point uh, last week um, that as a rallying point for Republicans, climate change really no longer exists uh, because there's a fairly significant number of Republicans who have very quietly moved over to the right side of this issue. So, Ben, I wonder how how you're thinking about the politics around this because it's been 15 years since Al Gore uh, you know, brought us his inconvenient truth. And how do you think American attitudes towards climate change have shifted? And you know, are we getting to a place where Americans see the climate as important to their everyday lives, at least enough of them anyway, to influence the Republican lawmakers who have so for so long, you know, held back any kind of um, uh, legislative movement? Well, certainly climate, I think, has sort of come to the fore and the science has been accepted. But I think a lot of the divide is still about what to do and what's involved and whether this is fixable or not, yeah. whether it just sort of, ex, you know, that you know, Are we all going to die? <laughs> but you know that that the world's the world's getting the world's getting hotter. So maybe you know time to move to the upper peninsula of Michigan from Arizona. Mm-hmm. You know, in reversing some of the mig- migration patterns that we've seen before. And that's uh, you know there's there's enough of that worked in there. Um, and I think this is a couple points because obviously water politics has always been the you know jumping off point in the West, and that you know that there's always been more demand than water. Um, you know, that this, this is something that you can, you know, just watch Chinatown and say, um, and that that's been amplified by the fact that there is now, because of climate change, you have issues with who's prepared for it. Um, that, you know, for example, there's now water shortages in Northern California, which traditionally has more rain because they don't have the same infrastructure that they built up in Southern California, where there's always been, you know, more concern about water. And so that they haven't built up these, you know, this infrastructure, there and that climate change is driving, you know, reducing the supply and changing the supply and changing who's prepared for it. But the politics of it, you know, I think that the, you know, obviously the Green New Deal has become an easy slogan for for Republicans to do in part because of the failures of the folks pushing it. We can go back to the initial thing about cows and methane. Yeah. 
um, but sort of the question about what's going on and what technologies work um, in sort of some of the divides that we've seen in terms of the skepticism on the left, for example, about sort of stepping towards carbon capture, which is something that the right has embraced. And, you know, the general debate about what to do because, you know, at this point there's enough variation on this because this is not something with a clean political solution that that technology, you know, that what tech, technological option you prefer is a little bit different. And you're also getting to a situation which everyone has a lot of sacred cows and a lot of particular interests in yeah. terms of what's going on and what those industries have created over, you know, a hundred plus years of uh, fossil fuel based economy. Totally. Uh, since you brought up sacred cows and methane, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I mean, first of all, I th- think you're totally right about the science is now accepted. There is, there is now more widespread acknowledgement that the problem exists and it exists because of us. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, the this is going to require change and that change is going to come at some cost to some people somewhere depending on the technology that you prefer. So you know, I, this may sound like a tangent, but on last week's roundup, um, Lene and Al also highlighted that there are major positive changes being driven by industry and consumer demand, like the explosive growth of um, electric vehicles, for example. And it made me start thinking about the top sources of emissions and the impact of the, you know, the different impact of different gases um, and also the messaging that's been used around climate change mitigation, you know, at an individual level. I, this was the first time I'd ever thought of, of changing um, the, the uh, migration patterns, right? Um, I hadn't even thought of that before. And you're probably right. A lot of people will start moving to cooler, cooler, safer um, locations. But there's a lot of the individual messaging, so the the prescriptions for individuals to you know help you know stop climate change that I just think is totally ineffective. According to the EPA, transportation industry and electricity production account for roughly three quarters of those greenhouse gases. Uh, the emissions warn you know the, the report warns about agriculture and commercial and residential make up the rest. But this gets more interesting when you look at the types of greenhouse gases. So methane, back to cows, CH four. Although it accounts for 10% of greenhouse gas emissions, it has a pound-for-pound impact of 25 times greater than the CO2 that is emitted by fossil fuels. And so nearly all of our methane emissions come back to livestock, cattle, uh, uh, cow farts, essentially. And, And like, you know, this got me thinking how instead of attempting to overhaul the world's and especially America's diet which seems like a Sisyphean project, if ever there was one, right? We can't even wear masks. Um, Our answer to these problems is likely going to be through innovation. Like, uh, you know, just like electric F-150s are going to change the way uh, people who like pickup trucks consume fossil fuels, synthetic and lab-grown meat could hopefully transform agriculture. And so, Lucy, I want to hear from you on on all of this now because so much of what we've grown accustomed to hearing from the most fervent, fervent climate activists has been in the vein of like, you know, uh, this is going to be an unfair, you know, uh, generalization, but to defeat climate change, we all have to become vegans and, uh, have a political revolution and stop driving cars and stop flying airplanes and, um, stop participating in capitalism, which from a messaging standpoint alone is really ineffective, right? It doesn't work. It makes people feel bad about themselves. It makes them feel hopeless or, you know, if they care, right? Or just sort of oppositional defiance order, they dig in their heels and then they pivot to own the libs rhetoric. So that was a lot. Um, 
Anyway, I think the question is, with the possibly newfound bipartisan will to at least acknowledge the threat of climate change, do you agree that innovation is more likely to be effective? Uh, and, and how can we refocus on that? If so. Well, I'm not sure there's newfound bipartisan will okay. for this. <laughs> that, that's a little too Pollyannish. But, um, but that would be nice. Um, you know, I actually, like, if we, even if we just stay with the the water piece, right? Yeah. There, there are all these kind of weird, strange bedfellows with renewables even, right? So actually, so, you know, in water, for instance, um, you can get water from the surface water. So that would be like your Colorado River allocation. And then you could get water from groundwater pumping. And I'm obviously a layman here, but that's essentially like you, you use technology to like get water that's deep in the earth, right? From like a different epoch, right? Yeah. You know, like that's supposed to should be like an emergency water source. And it was, but then along came windmill technology, right? And so now a bunch of farmers who desperately need water are using windmill technology, other types of renewable technology to pump water out of the ground, yeah. right? So there's also this weird piece where renewables themselves Yes, huge, huge benefits, huge promise, but they can also become mm. kind of challenging, yeah. right? And, you know, solar power, right? Well, solar is only good for daytime, right? When do most people use the most power at home, right? When they have a bunch of, at night, right? Works in we, sunny geographies. We all use, right. Yeah. But but then we're all, we all go home if you're in Phoenix and you all crank up the air conditioner from, you know, like- 6 p.m. to the morning when it's not sunny and and we don't have so there are there are big overhauls that need to be made and I tend to think actually I've read a lot about the water issue this week the wildfire issue I tend to think actually that and we've had this a version of this conversation on a bunch of other issues that if we could just focus on smaller changes we could start to see some results that could have a really big impact and create a will for a larger discussion, hopefully bipartisan support for attention to climate change, but also some legislation. So for instance, people don't realize that Arizona is in much better shape than California right now because Arizona years ago implemented um, a standard where no new development can happen unless the developer can show that they have a hundred year supply of water, right? Yeah. California, Californians are going to be hit by water rationing now much more than Arizonans because they had a failure of planning, right? Another issue federally on wildfires, right? Um, it turns out that part of the challenge, aside from the cultural challenge of, of you know, kind of getting over our old idea of Smokey the Bear and getting people acquainted with the idea that maybe we do need to go and do forest management is that traditionally the way that the feds have allocated budget to the forest service is that they give one big lump sum mm. that is for basically fighting forest fires. And so forest management, so controlled burns, that kind of stuff would have to come out of that budget. Right. And so that creates a, a real problem for the forest service in justifying spending parts of yeah. that bucket. Right. That's an example of a thing that could be easily changed, right? We also have, if we want to stay with the Colorado River water shortage thing, an issue where some of the technology that water allocation holders are relying on are super old. There's a tribe in Arizona called the Colorado River Indian Tribe. They have something like 20% of the whole Arizona allocation, like 600,000 wow. 600, 
acre feet of the, you know, three million ish yeah. uh, of Arizona's allocation, they want to find a way to sort of move their water allocation to lease back to to farmers because they have they don't need all the water. Farmers could use it, and they need to improve their own infrastructure because their infrastructure for sort of management of this allocation was was built by prisoners of war, you know, oh, decades wow. and decades ago. But they need a they need a federal legislation to do that. And so, you know, I could give more anecdotes yeah. like this, but these are all examples of those are not sexy, yeah. right? Yeah. But those are things that could make a real difference. Yeah. They're just small changes that really could put Western states, sort of the country as a whole, in a much better position to manage these things incrementally and on the margins. And I think that in communities, if communities could then see big benefits of, of those changes, there could be more of a will for larger, larger yeah. um, addressing of this yeah. issue. Ben, this isn't likely to be a campaign issue anytime soon, or or maybe it, maybe it will be. But how do you expect Congress to you know get some some progress here? Um, what form will it take? We know that there are different interests um, in terms of the different technologies, but is it is it likely that we'll see something as part of the infrastructure package? Is it, you know, how far away are we from even incremental progress on some of the stuff as you read it? I mean, there's certainly stuff both in the bipartisan infrastructure pack- package and a lot more in the bigger reconciliation package. Um, but then a lot of it then gets into sort of setting up priorities too, that I think obviously this is a bigger issue and there's, a, you know, certainly a lot of very wealthy funders putting in money on yeah. climate stuff and creating both real and more sort of uh, astroturf groups on this on the left. Uh, but it's it's about figuring out what our priorities are that in how to set a broader policy that one of the big challenges right now on climate, for example, is dealing with China because China has the monop- has essentially sp- – Priced out U.S. manufacturers on solar panels, so that at this point that you know it involves a trade war with China in order to make the U.S. more self-reliant oh, yeah. solar panels. But it's a question of picking that fight, and that's also been a challenge with how the Biden administration dealt with them because they are, of course, the source of a number of these emissions. That the U.S. is not the only only country on Earth right. emitting grass, greenhouse gas emissions, and right. while. You know, we're certainly taking steps. Western Europe is certainly far ahead of that. That there's a lot of sort of second, third world countries yeah. that are that are less, you know, yeah. less concerned about it, which becomes one of the concerns. Something Republicans totally. mentioned, like, why do we need to do any of this stuff when China's building coal plants? Yeah, like we're just eating all the burden, and it's not going to change anything. Yeah, but I think in terms of what's happening legislatively, that there's sort of the climate stuff's moving on one path. Water, of course, is moving on on another, and that's something that is very deeply tied right now to leadership because the two top uh, the two top folks in the House of Representatives are Nancy Pelosi from San Francisco and Kevin McCarthy from Bakersfield, mm-hmm. who, of course, one represents a place where the rain falls, the other one represents a place in California where they need all the rain for yeah. for farms, and that you know is going to constantly be be something that's sort of pushing point in Congress because the water in California is not just sort of a local issue there and obviously it's federally managed, but this is something that I know deep has deep impact on, you know, top leaders in Congress. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um because you mentioned China uh and the and the and the how, you know, dealing with essentially autocratic countries is going to be have to be a part of this. I want to play a clip from Molly McHugh on the show. This was many weeks ago. I'm really curious on what your takes are. 
uh, in the uh, on the conflict that she sets up. And you see this very heavily layered into everything Biden did this week, yeah. where on every communique, climate was above democracy. And I have a problem with that. And I know that progressives probably love it. But yeah. um, when this administration, I think, really does believe, which is why John Kerry has the job that he has, you know, we have to work with China and Russia on climate change. It's this global priority, blah, blah, blah. I'm not a climate denier. 100%. Yeah. We need to be like back in the yeah. space leading on these issues. But the belief that like mobilizing autocratic states to this cause um, is uh, going to be an advantage to us undermines every message about the power and innovation of democracies. Mm. Okay. Climate change versus democracy. If the administration needs to prioritize one over the other at this stage, how do you? how do you rank those? I mean, personally, in terms of, you know, the likelihood that we're going to be able to cooperate with China, how do you see that tension? I mean, it's it's a real tension, and that, that's about setting priorities, and politics is about priorities and what yeah. your most important priorities are, and that's something that the administration certainly is going to need to, need to deal with um, as we're dealing with all these other issues, uh, foreign policy challenges with China in terms of Hong Kong, in terms of their sort of more stable rattling over Taiwan, in terms of what the overall goal is and what's the most effective way to get those goals. And that's obviously something I, I have I have not uh, not spent much time dealing with the leaders yeah. of the Chinese Communist Party, yeah. so I can't give you too much insight into your thinking. But that's a tension tension throughout, and that you know there are other tensions dealing with China too in terms of trade, in terms yeah. of what's going on. That as you know, the one challenge we're dealing with is that you know the U.S. is still this is not you know a bipolar world the way it was during the Cold War, but it's not a unipolar one either. Yeah. And that challenge there of how we're dealing with with China is, is a real issue. And it's with, you know, other developing nations too, instead of a question of carrots and sticks and what's in our interest that yeah. obviously those calculations may have been different last week before everything happened in Afghanistan, because totally. foreign policy is obviously a moving ball and rely, requires allies too, that, you know, dealing with this stuff is also something where it relies on buying from Japan, from South Korea, from the Philippines, you know, that in terms of from Australia. And that, you know, that there's all sorts of interwinding tensions there, and you know, you, it's hard to pick one priority or the other. But it's sort of figuring out what mix they think is in the best interest of the United States long term. Yeah, Lucy, I, I think that's totally right, Ben. The the um, especially foreign policy being such a moving ball. I think the question really boils down to: Is it possible to solve the climate crisis in in, in a meaningful way? with autocratic partners, <laughs> like with, 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 you know, can we trust countries like China, uh, if we're going to solve this or do we have to prioritize human rights and democracy before, you know, so that we have <laughs> credible partners to work with? I don't know that I'm so bought into the idea there's, that there's such a dichotomy between progress on climate and kind of democratic interests. I'll say mm. something that yeah, is okay. very seldom said, but I'll have to think more about that. <laughs> <laughs> Great but, answer. But I will tell you something that my therapist told me in in a discussion of how to deal with difficult family members, which was, you know, it's not practical to think that you're going to change these people, but get into a headspace where you can think about mm. how to 
show them that it's in their best interest to behave in a certain way, whether or not they believe that or not, because, you know, it's okay if it's transactional, if that could serve you. And I would say we could use that approach (laughs) with some of these countries, as, as Ben alluded to. Just because China has a huge economy, China has a huge economy because it relies on exporting products to mm-hmm. Europe, to the U.S. I mean, we have other levers to pull. So, I mean, here I am talking about sort of not intervening, but there are – we have levers. Our allies have levers to pull, to use, to shift some of the behavior of countries like China, of Russia, of other autocratic regimes – you know, it, it is okay to kind of don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, and it is okay to kind of lead them to water however they can be led and and think about just pr- the practical implications for their economies yeah. of a refusal to to participate in, in change if, if we decide that's the path forward. Is there, uh, Ben, anything you think that's missing uh, in our country's climate discourse from your perspective? Our, our country's climate discourse is certainly it's too sprawling um, because I mean that we're covering you know at this point we've gone from cows to China I know. yeah fires to is, cows to water to China this is yeah. this is entire thing but I think it's a question of the level of attention focus it's gotten that it still has not sunk in in a lot of ways is something that sort of ties into all these issues that when you're talking about climate that this is you know a trade issue it's a foreign policy issue it's it's a defense issue. Um, and that in terms of the fact that how sort of deeply tied in it is and, you know, we've certainly had – it'll be interesting to see how the Republican Party moves forward on this because the quirks of the of the last president with, you know, where so much of the climate stuff got derailed by windmills and his particular petty grudges over Scottish golf course, <laughs> um, which seems – it seems so kind right. of but, – but that in terms of the fact that what the – what the new normal looks like because that, you know, obviously the political discourse in the country, you know, was disrupted. Some people view that as good. Some people view that as bad. But now that it's been disrupted, what yeah. what the new normal looks like. And I think that's going to be the real, the real test moving forward, particularly as there is pressure on a lot of the major fossil fuel industry companies who've sort of acknowledged it and that at this point they're viewing this as – you can see this is not, you know, something we're denying the science behind it climate change, but a rear guard action Yep, and what the mechanics of that look like. Yep. In a breach of current and what they refer to as prospective customers data, T-Mobile announced that the first and last names, dates of birth, social security numbers, and driver's license information of some 40 million people were exposed in addition to the account pins for hundreds of thousands of active T-Mobile users though the hackers claim that number is 100 million people. This is among the largest thefts of social security numbers and comes in the wake of a number of other high-profile cyber attacks this year, including the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack and attacks on UK and Ireland's healthcare systems. <sighs> Lucy, it seems like we're stuck in a never-ending game of cyber security whack-a-mole, except that the moles keep getting away. <laughs> like, we're not actually whacking the moles back down. Um do you think most Americans grasp what's taking place with these types of attacks um, or are they equipped you know, to understand and address their own possible exposure? How do you think about these? Um, no and no. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so the good news is that most of this information was already out there. Yeah. Because there have been so many data breaches. And actually, it, um, uh, security experts said this week that this is only the fourth worst <laughs> this year. <laughs> so the bad news about the T-Mobile data breach is that the the kind of data model of, I won't get to in the weeds here, but yeah. the the way that the data is presented, it's presented in a blended form so that you could, you could if you if you bought this data and these hackers are are trying to sell this this data online for you know like $270,000 for like a subset of it. It's it's you know it changes every day cuz they're asking for 6 bitcoin actually. So it's your your department. Um but it's it's presented in a way that's very very accessible. Um so you know if if a hacker wanted to um kind of like marshal the information that they can find online which most of us you know our data is not very secure so finding our phone number, our current address, other things about us that could be identified to use in, say, you know, an identity theft. This data is like really cleanly presented and is is basically being delivered in a way where they could just sort of pick one Immediately and do it. Right. Yeah. And that includes something by some estimates like 30 million social security numbers. <sighs> and, and part of why this data breach happened and this will just blow your mind. And I'm mentioning this because we've talked about this before. Yeah. We were talking about Colonial Pipeline. And yeah. remember during the Colonial Pipeline stuff that one of the people was like, well, there was like a – there was no two-factor authentication. Yeah, basically. that's but right. Like, but the password wasn't like password one, two, three, yeah, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, my God. Exclamation point. <laughs> yeah. But in the T-Mobile case, they had, you know, like any company, they have a backup server where they're storing data about, you know, customers – also people who were prospective customers. This dates back to the 90s. And they were, they just had, this wasn't even like someone using stolen information to access the server or whatever. They just had an unprotected, unencrypted, you know, backup server that hackers were able to very easily get into. And and the other really bad news besides T-Mobile's unbelievable incompetence here is that they also exposed data relating to people's mobile devices and SIM cards. And that's the thing that should scare people the most about this particular data breach mm. because it opens up people whose data was exposed to something called a SIM swap attack. Okay. Which is, you know, when you call your bank or call whomever and you're like, I don't remember my password, I don't remember my info, and they say something like, okay, we're going to we're gonna send a text to your phone and tell us the number, Right. Well, based on the information that was acquired by hackers in this T-Mobile data breach, now they can basically spoof your device, right? So they could, using that IMEI data and the sort of data associated with your SIM number, they could basically get a device, their own device, to look like it's your number and then use that to do much more kind of like yeah. sophisticated identity theft kind of kind of breach stuff where they would basically call a customer service person and everyone thinks, oh, that little number you oh, get at secured. your tags, that's secure. authentication, yeah. Right. Yeah. That basically they could sort of blow through that wall that a lot of hackers get to when they're trying to steal your, steal your identity, steal your information, open new accounts in your name. So if you are a T-Mobile customer or if you ever – even thought about having T-Mobile and yeah. you should go reset your pin. Yeah. <laughs> you should um, start 
following credit monitoring. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is a worse breach than some others, but unfortunately it's becoming part for the course, not only because of how much information we're all putting out there, but also because of just how lackadaisical these companies these, have been yeah. with security. And it's absurd. Yeah. And also we should mention use an authenticator app, which you can get and, and you can use this in, in some of the more secure, more sensitive accounts that you have. You can use an authenticator account uh, app instead of a text message, which is a more secure form of two-factor authentication. Yeah. Ben, God, I don't, I don't even, I'm not even sure what to ask you because it's so mind-boggling and it feels like with attack after attack after attack and then in the volume of these records in the in the tens of millions it feels like at this point everybody's data has been stolen and and i wonder i wonder if it has and do americans eventually just need to get used to the idea that their data is out in the open and that it can be harvested and what is the appropriate thing for the federal government to step in and do if anything i mean i what what yeah, how do you how do you think about this, and if what solutions come to mind? What you know? Well, I think I think there's sort of a couple of things. First of yeah. all, there is there is that sort of brave new world right now, um, and a lot of this is the fact that this is the level of the state and this sort of thing. This is not something that would be available in the past. That you know, 20 years ago, most people wouldn't necessarily have cell phones. 10 years ago, the cell phones would just be phones. <laughs> yeah, just you be know, phones. This is this is you know, as opposed to this. But you know, but I think there's also in terms of thinking about uh, the level of liability that these these companies face. That at this point, you know, what ends up moving progress in America most of the time is fear of lawsuits. Yep. And that's what opens it up. That at this point, you know, if you're leaving stuff on unsecured servers, that companies, you know, do steps, they take these sort of steps because they're afraid of getting sued by someone and making sure that setting up that there's causes of action, you know, because obviously all these penalties don't necessarily matter, but yeah. having the same level of same level of worry that makes sure that the, by the amusement park makes sure that you do have to be this call to ride the roller coaster. And you know, that you know, all these sort of annoying sort of stuff that we deal with, all all this stuff happens because of lawsuits and people want to go out of a way to avoid lawsuits even when it's the dumbest yeah. dumbest stuff. Yeah. Um but and this is obviously the reverse of that. And that's you know it creates that level of uh of negative incentive. Yeah. But the, but the, in this case, okay. So, the, so there is some, uh, risk of lawsuit threat, fear of lawsuits, I think on the part of these companies, um, but not enough because it's, it, it seems like it, like every other week or so I'm getting an email as part of a class action lawsuit that I am, you know, by default, a part of, you could get I, a dollar. You could get, I, you a could get, a, you could get $10 in this settlement <laughs> if you just put in your information and whatever, join this class action lawsuit, become part of the settlement. The problem is that the while the companies themselves may have to pay out you know, some number of millions of dollars as a product as a, as a result of this breach, the damage that is done is, is asymmetrical oh, yes. compared oh, yes. to, to, to the average use. Okay, $10, great. If someone spoofs my social security card, Gets a social security number, gets a credit card. Like the damage is in it's the totally, it's it's right. totally asymmetrical, and that that I think becomes becomes the challenge in sort of dealing with that because, you know, and it's it not not exactly viewing the trial lawyers, you know, industry as exactly the the most proceeding force of good, but in terms of what what scares people and what scares corporations these days when there's that yeah. level of of negligence, which is yeah. what we've seen with, for example, the asbestos industry. And and that's and that's the the issue where from these companies incentives you know fits in their self interest if that whatever they're 
you know, the cost of dealing with the hack versus the cost of having the security doing that, that, you know, changing the cost. So it costs them more to, you know, yeah. to actually have to deal with the consequences of hacking them. That this is about putting the things in, in their self-interest to do this as opposed to, you know, stuff happens. Yeah. We'll eat the money. It's a net plus at the end of the, you know, it's yeah. like, and that's in changing that, that level of issues, because obviously T-Mobile is going to be in the news for two weeks. Folks right. may decide to sign up for, I guess, you know, now we're down to three. To, a you tiny know, fraction of people. To, yeah. to, you know, folks may decide to sign up for Verizon rather than T-Mobile yeah. in the next week. Yeah. But that that sort of goes on and that they'll sort of eat some money that'll, yeah. you know, we'll all get our, you know, $10. Um, and that doesn't necessarily create incentives for them to go, you know, this is creating this huge liability and these huge costs. Um, and if, you know, depending on what they knew about and when they knew knew right. about the un- unsecured server, because obviously it's sitting there since the nineties, and yeah. sort of how to how to change the incentives around it. Totally, nothing against torts, because you know, as a, <laughs> even as a libertarian, I'm very pro tort. Are you really a libertarian? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think <laughs> but so. But <laughs> I would love to see a private sector solution. Yeah, um, like. like Something that is, I mean, the problem is that the private sector solution, the private sector player that gets introduced in all of these things is like, you get two free years of Experian, right? Who does that benefit? That benefits the Experian enterprise sales team who are just going gangbusters, serving, selling this, yeah. these, these licenses to these companies who are just yeah. sort of like hemorrhaging <laughs> data, right? Yeah, just come but, and take it. But, just come and take it. <laughs> but but I would think that maybe there's some something along the lines of of a kind of better business bureau-esque entity that could, um, you know, the, uh, an entity that could become a kind of middleman between consumers and these large companies, right? Um, to, to create better standards, to sort of require better... Um, a higher level of commitment to those standards, because even if we keep passing federal legislation and we conceive of this or that piece of federal legislation, all of these companies, not to sound like a cynic, and again, maybe the private sector idea is a pipe dream, but all of these companies will just start considering those fines as like a cost of doing business, right? They just, they just, okay, well now there are higher penalties for data Mm. breaches, right? And and Mm. they just adjust their business model you know, what you need, what we really need is not to have more, in my opinion, more lawsuits, although that's fine and people should have their day in court when companies sort of are bad actors. But what we need to get at is people, the, these companies' customer bases, right? And so thinking about other kinds of levers like, uh, and it's a, a hill battle, but like a third party where if you're, if, if this company is not sort of like showing that they are a member and are aligning to these standards, you just don't do business with them. Maybe that's a pipe dream, but I think we should be open to a lot of different options because also the federal government, not super great about thinking about innovation around data privacy or technological security. And so I don't think that a federal solution is necessarily the answer to sort of future-proofing um, data privacy and security. Yeah, I, I I get that. I'm open to all kinds of solutions, but it does seem to me like the damage done has to be like the 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 cost, the potential risk to the company has to be commensurate with the harm done. Totally. And right now, it just isn't. Totally. Um. And 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 it may be too late. Right. There, all this data is out there. People aren't. They, we're not going to change people's social security numbers. I mean, like. 
if they, if they're already out there on the open market, essentially you can buy it in Bitcoin. Then how much of this actually matters? I mean, I, I think it, I think it does matter. But what I'm saying is like, what what are we protecting for if most of this data has been exposed at one point? Yeah, I mean, it, it's getting so bad that. And this is probably not realistic, but it's almost to the point where it's like, do we all need yet another number, right? Yeah, and we just all right. move, right? And we just like start from scratch, and we all take yeah. better care of it. But but that all presume and that's possible. But that all presumes that you're starting from a baseline where everyone has cleaned up their houses. Okay. Before we close this segment, though, I do want to be prescriptive for people who are concerned about their data privacy. There are some things you can do, like change your passwords frequently. I know it is annoying and time-consuming, but it is worth it. Just do it. Um, you can use a a credential management system. There are, there are a handful of them that are very good um, to store your passwords in. Um, you can invest in credit monitoring, like you said, Lucy. You can freeze your credit if you're not actively applying for new credit. Is there anything else we should tell people that they can do? Change your pins. Change your pins. Yeah. Okay. Now that we're up to speed on at least three of the biggest stories of the week, let's turn to what you are watching. Uh, ben, you want to start us off? Um, what I'm watching is the uh, start of the 2024 presidential race. <laughs> okay. Um, and just what particularly on the Republican side is everyone sort of setting out their their stalls there. The, at this point, we're close to a dozen potential candidates in, in Iowa alone this, so far this year. On the pre-presidential tour. On the pre-presidential tour tomorrow, um, uh, you know, probably not in the first tier of candidates, but there's a joint Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Green event. Um, I forgot they're still doing that. You have uh, Tom Cotton, Ted Cruz, Jim Jordan's in Iowa actually in a couple of weeks too. Uh, Rubio's coming soon as well. Um, and just in terms of what what these folks are doing and saying is as they're trying to appeal to appeal to the Republican base because yeah. that's the question of everyone has their own theories of the case of what Republican primary voters want in the not quite the post-Trump era. Um, we'll, 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 we'll discover if it is or not. And watching them slowly sort of start to set out their stalls is sort of a test of everyone making their bets of what they think it is. So we're obviously not going to get a sense of this for a while. We still have the question of what Donald Trump eventually decides to do about running for president in 2024. But starting to see what everyone's different theories of the cases is going to be very, very interesting in what they emphasize, what they don't emphasize. Yeah. Because obviously it's all very, very complicated in terms of that there's certainly a lot of voters who like you know, majority, uh, beyond a majority of, you know, super majority of Republican voters were mostly happy with Trump's policies. Mm -hmm. But whether they're happy with Trump himself is a slightly different story. And it's sort of figuring out how much playing to a more traditional idea of the Republican Party versus a more Trumpian idea, how much you're playing the personality mm -hmm. versus not playing the personality. And everyone has their own slightly different theory of the case. And seeing how that starts to get laid out is going to be very interesting as an early uh, – Indicator for where things are going. Yeah, and and are there any early indications by your read yet, or is it still too early? I mean, it's still it's still too early. Like, yeah. uh, everyone, no one's, uh, you know, no one's wandering out there. You know, we, we don't have, uh, you know, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger stomping central committees right now. There's sort of not 
there's certainly at this point not a, not a never-Trump element in the yeah. Republican Party. But it's a question of what the gradations are, what you, what you want to emphasize going from, you know, obviously the Matt Gateses of the world yeah. to something that's a little bit more restrained to say where, you know, Pence in Iowa was interesting, where sort of praising the administration that he was in without rarely mentioning the name of uh, – the name of Trump himself. Wow. But that, that's also – you can do that in a slightly different way when you're Pence as opposed to Nikki Haley or or other folks. Pence is, of course, in perhaps the most unique spot of all of all the Republican candidates. Yeah, true. Lucy, what are you watching? Well, not to take us too far afield, but I'm thinking about something that's happening in pop culture. Okay. Which is that, as everyone knows, the longtime host of Jeopardy, Alex Trebek, died um, last year, and uh, there's been this big search for a new host. All these guest hosts came in and out, and in the end, they chose a guy who's a producer of Jeopardy, a guy named Mike Richards, who's not very well known, um, but more and more stuff has come out about him since then, and this week, there was an expose of him in uh, The Ringer about the fact that he has been a rather unsavory guy in addition to having had several lawsuits that he was named in when he was part of the production team of The Price is Right. He's also a um, erstwhile podcaster who has said really terrible things about women, about Haitians, about Jewish people. And now, you know, it's sort of an interesting contrast, like the most family-friendly host that Mm. ever was, Alex Trebek. And I think that this is kind of interesting because it's this legacy program and now there's this new person who is really maybe kind of showing a side of himself that is not a great fit. But it just really is making me think a lot about not only the so-called cancel culture, who knows, will he retain the show, will he not, but also – our attitudes toward men in power. Mm. I won't get into the particulars of things he said, but when you read about it, it's pretty shocking. Um, and so it's just kind of a microcosm of of larger things happening and it, within a kind of legacy media property that is so beloved and, and you know, yeah. piping into people's homes every, every day. And so on the one hand, you think, well, are we going to hold every single thing someone else, someone has ever said against them? But then there's this this other piece of like, well, if you have said stuff you like that, stuff like where that. do you fall <laughs> yeah. in the in the kind of over? Like, do you do you could you just be on the production side? Maybe you're not going to be heir to yeah. Alex Trebek's legacy. So I mentioned this because I think this could become like mm. a another kind of um, flashpoint story the way, say, Dr. Seuss's books mm. have or any number mm. of things. So be prepared to watch this become wildly exaggerated um, if if he's fired or booted or whatever. But just we've talked a lot about men in power and, and kind of what accountability looks like. And yeah. this is just another story of that. That's a good flag uh, to look ahead toward. I also think he has a co-host, a female co-host. Well, there's not a co-host, actually. There's Maya Bialik, who is a superstar, and she was given specials and spinoffs, which amounts to nothing, basically. <laughs> so now you have, frankly, this asshole, Mike Richards, who can't keep it together enough to even say that he likes trivia, and this superstar <laughs> who's been passed over to do God knows what, even though she should be, obviously, the next host for Jeopardy. So Jeopardy... 
Powers that be, if you're listening to this. She would be such a good yeah. host. God, just, it's, this is a, this is such an easy win. Totally. It has it all. <laughs> I just want to flag this, uh, this, this story. Uh, it was a New York Times story about the Supreme Court might uh, be interested in revisiting New York Times versus Sullivan, which is a longstanding decision that raised the burden of proof for plaintiffs who are public figures, put that in quotation, air quotes, um, in defamation cases requiring them to prove uh, actual malice, again, in, in quotes. So last month, um, Justice Gorsuch signaled interest in reviewing Sullivan, and he wrote in a dissenting opinion, quote, what started in 1964 to ensure robust reporting by a comparative handful of print and broadcast outlets has evolved into an ironclad subsidy for the publication of falsehoods by means and on a scale previously unimaginable, um, end quote. So the impact of, the, of that decision in uh, 1964 is that we have to tolerate some level of falsehood or um, just allow some reporting to be wrong about public figures in the interest of free, of free press and, and free speech. And, um, you know, what I think is interesting here is that it dates back to, you know, a time when journalism was a strong institution with strong ethics that were shared among most of the outlets responsible for most of the information that the public consumed. And that's just no longer the case. Like we live in an entirely different media environment now. And so while, while in that signal you can hear, and, and the Times reporter pointed this out, you can sort of hear echoes of Donald Trump's, we're going to sue the media, right? We're going to open up the libel laws because of the fake news saying untrue things about me, right? You can hear that in, in the dissenting opinion. But I do think it's interesting that that this is the way they're, uh, or, or that they're considering revisiting, that this is a very big, like landmark decision, and how the new media environment that we live in will will impact the consideration. So that's that's what I'm watching. Ben, Lucy, where can people find you on the internet? Um, I guess on Twitter, Ben C. Jacobs, at Ben C. Jacobs. Terrific. Lucy? I'm on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. There are a number of ways you can help support this work and our mission. You can donate, which helps support the huge team and effort that goes into every Politicology episode. Or you can join the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think more like a political strategist, to look further down the road than everybody else, and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. If you're not already in our Politicology Plus community, you can unlock today's Plus segment and much more at politicology.com plus. You can share this episode or one of your favorites with friends, family, or colleagues. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth, and this helps us reach more people. And you can rate five stars in the Apple Podcasts app and leave us a review there because this helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.